So Revelation chapter 2 and verse 18. Let's hear uh, what the Spirit has to say to his church this week. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I'll give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I'll give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, these are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ are brought to us by the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you would give us ears to hear. Enlighten our minds, soften our hearts, uh, change our wills, we pray. And we ask, trusting in your mercy and for Jesus' sake alone. Amen. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones was one of the most gifted I would say significant preachers of the 20th century, in England uh, at least. Uh, he was a Welshman uh, who began his ministry out in Wales, but eventually moved to, to London, uh, to the heart of London, to Westminster. Uh, and there preached morning and evening for, for many years, filling a, a giant church. Uh, and therefore, as a Welshman in, in England, Lloyd Jones felt he, he had something of a kind of outsider's view uh, on English society. Now, let me to proceed this by saying, I am an Englishman, okay? I'm an Englishman. Uh, and so I feel that the weight of what Lloyd-Jones says here. Uh, but Lloyd-Jones said this, the Englishman has a genius for compromise. Okay, the Englishman has a genius for compromise. Now, to be fair, that's not a direct quote. That is someone else summarizing Lloyd-Jones's attitude to the English. The Englishman has a genius for compromise, I wonder what you make of that. I'm aware one of the great blessings of this church is that we have got way into double figures of different nations uh, here. Okay, so many people in the room are not English. But I wonder what you make of that. Either if you're, you're somebody who's not English looking in and you've sort of moved to England and you're sort of wondering about these strange English people, or if you're English yourself, a genius of a compromise. I think, as an Englishman, I think he's probably right on the whole. It's a generality. 
Of course, there are exceptions. But on the whole, I think he's probably right. We are, we are not a nation on the whole, for example, that has been given to massive political extremes. You look through the 20th century, and we didn't undergo some of the real extremes that some other nations did. A few years back, about six or seven years ago, do you remember the anonymous protests? Everyone would wear those kind of Guy Fawkes masks, and they were meant to be protests all around the world. Um, the BBC interviewed someone who turned up at the anonymous protest in London. Okay, so you've got, you got thousands on the streets all around the world. And in London, it was a bit of a flop. And the BBC interviewed a guy. He's buying his Guy Fawkes masks. And he said this. Well, it would have been a revolution, but I think the weather's put everyone off, to be honest. Okay. That is so English, isn't it? Would have been a revolution. Should we start a revolution? Mm, looks like it might be a bit drizzly. Okay, it's countdown at five o'clock. Let's stay in. So I think Lloyd-Jones is probably onto something. We are not, on the whole, a nation given to extremes. We are good at compromise. And therefore, as well as saying, yes, Martin Lloyd-Jones, you're probably right, I think many of us might feel, and, and thank you, it's a compliment, we like it. Who wants to be a radical? Do you feel that? Do you want to be known at work as the, the extremist, the fundamentalist Christian? We all want to be known as Christians, but we like to distinguish, well, I, I'm not that kind of Christian. We always want to find someone to the, I guess the right of us would be the way of thinking about it. So someone out there who, who's more radical, so, so we can look uh, okay. We want to fit in. And so Jesus says to the church uh, this morning, says to this church in Thyatira, don't be too English. Don't be too English. Their big problem in Thyatira, do you see? Verse 20, it's tolerance. I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel. The problem in Thyatira is they are up for compromise. They're not abandoning the faith. Uh, They're not wanting to totally throw in the gospel and just blend in with the culture around. But they are wanting to compromise Tolerance, a virtue that, that, that is seen as such a great thing in so much of society, is exactly the problem in the church, Jesus says to Thyatira. So, so let's look a little bit more, more closely. Uh, two, two things diagnosing the problem, two ways Jesus diagnoses the problem. Uh, the first is we tolerate what Jesus won't. This is verses 19 to 21. We tolerate what Jesus won't. In many ways, as we've said, that the church looks pretty healthy at first glance. Verse 19, I know your works, says Jesus. All the way through these letters, we've seen Jesus walks among the candlesticks. He knows your life. He knows life in the fellowship of these different congregations. He knows your, your workplaces. And he knows these people. He knows that for many of them, their, their works, their obedience, well, are healthy. Their love their faith, their service, their endurance. Life isn't easy. We've seen that in almost all the letters. There, there are, well, arguably none of the cities, these seven cities, where being a Christian is just a, a very easy thing. But they keep enduring. And not only do the fire tyrants keep going, but you see the end of the verse, your ladder works exceed the first. They are growing. There's something really comforting there, isn't there? It's not that the fire tyrants are perfect in love, perfect in obedience, perfect in endurance. 
but that slowly, as a church, they are growing in all those virtues. And that's what makes, I think, verse 20 such a surprise. One verse of commendation where it would seem, if we just stopped reading there, that everything is healthy, and then many verses where Jesus diagnoses the problem. Why does he spend so much more time on the problems than on the healthy aspects of the church? Is it because he's like a kind of Ofsted inspector just looking for trouble? The kind of person, this might be unfair to Ofsted, but the kind of person who just likes pointing out all the faults in a person and can never see the good, the kind of ultra-critical dad. Well, well, no, it's more that Jesus is a doctor. When you go to the doctor, you go to the doctor and, and children, maybe you go to the doctor and uh, your tummy's hurting and, and you, you say to the doctor, there's, there's something wrong, my, my tummy really hurts. If the doctor says, well, your toe's fine and your foot's looking great and your shin, it's, it's really healthy and your knee, it's going so well, start talking through all the body parts you just want to say, yeah, I know all that, I know all that, but t- tell me what the problem is. What's the problem? What needs sorting out? A good doctor gets to the heart of the problem. That's what Jesus is doing in these letters, I think. And there is a real problem, a real problem with toleration. Uh, it's also with this woman Jezebel. There she is uh, in verse 20. I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. Now, she's presumably not called Jezebel. Jezebel, you may know, was a a queen in the Old Testament days, married to King Ahab. And she was a queen who had a pretty bad rap sheet. She led slowly the people of God away from obedience to God, from faith in God, and introduced all sorts of other false gods. She persecuted the prophets, the true prophets, and ended up falling under the judgment of God. In that sense, I think it's a a bit like a school child coming home and saying, well, my headmaster, he's he's Hitler. I'm not actually saying his name is really Hitler, but he is that kind of character. Well, so too, this appears to be someone in the church, presumably a woman, who has set herself up, verse 20, as a prophetess. In other words, she is claiming she has direct revelation from God. One of the things we, we try and make sure we do week by week on Sundays, midweek in, in, Bible, in, in community groups, rather, is make sure the Bible is, is driving the ship, as it were. But, but, but for Jezebel... Jezebel, there's no need for that. Bang, that can go. All, all that stuff from Paul, the apostle, and John, all those gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Never mind that. I am a prophetess. I can speak for God directly. That's always a danger, isn't it? When someone claims that, that, that they are the spokesman uh, for God in and of themselves, at least if they're not going through uh, the scriptures. And she's begun to lead the church astray in a couple of ways. She's appointed herself a prophetess and is teaching, verse 20, and seducing my servants, that's the rest of the church, to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, they seem a strange pairing. Sexual immorality, we can see that's bad. And there's food sacrificed to idols. Now, what's that about? Well, in the, the ancient world that John is writing to, these cities dotted around what is now uh, Turkey, uh, they were all in, in, in the sway or under the sway of the Roman Empire. And each city would have guilds, clubs, if you like, children, for the different jobs. The archaeologists have dug all this sort of stuff up and found all the evidence. And we know there was a, a guild, a club for, for the bakers, another one for the metal workers, the bronze workers. Uh, in Thyatira, there's, there's one they dug up of, for, for purple cloth workers. In fact, you might, you might know the story of Lydia 
Uh, in Acts 16, Lydia, who's one of the first people who gets converted in the city of Philippi, she is from Thyatira, bringing her, her purple cloth from Thyatira to Philippi to sell. So each of these guilds, each of these, these little clubs for particular professions, well, they'd have a god. They'd meet to worship that god. Food would be sacrificed to the god. And by eating the food, you are participating in the worship, as it were. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul says there's nothing, there's nothing actually dangerous about meat sacrificed to an idol. You're in the market and you eat a kebab and it happens that it was sacrificed to some sort of god who doesn't exist. Paul says there's nothing wrong with it. The God doesn't exist after all. But there is a problem when by eating the meal, you are participating in the praise, the worship. You are saying, yes, this is my God. In that sense, it's a little like a sort of false version of the Lord's Supper we'll celebrate later. Uh, This meal is for those who say, I belong to Jesus. He has forgiven my sins. He is my Lord, my master, my friend. So by participating in the meal, you're saying, yes, he is my God. Or similarly in... Services to Apollo or Hera or whatever other god it may be, you were doing exactly that. And it seems that Jezebel was saying, well, that's okay. That's okay. It's not, in other words, that she was saying, stop worshipping Jesus, give up on him, and switch to, to Apollo. Rather, she was saying, just mix and match. Have both. And that would be particularly appealing because for, for, for most people in these cities, if you wanted to stay in the club, if you wanted to keep your job, you had to sacrifice to the idol to join in. And suddenly the gap between ancient Turkey and today isn't so big, is it? Some of you will be in careers already, or it'll come to you in the future, where you are asked to compromise your faith, your beliefs, if you want to progress in the company, or even if you want to stay in the company. Uh, You'll know the issues uh, as well as I do. Better, no doubt. In many ways, it's easier for pastors. We're kind of almost a step back off the the front line. No one's going to sack me for believing in the gospel. I get sacked for not believing the gospel. But for many of you guys, it is much, much harder because you're in environments where the heat is being turned up. No one is going to say to you, you must stop being a Christian if you want to continue working here. But they may start saying, you must also sign up to this particular charter. In other words, don't be too extreme. Compromise. Yes, keep Jesus, of course. That's lovely. I'm glad you enjoy Sunday mornings with your other funny little friends. But don't be too fundamentalist. Down there in verse 20, uh, the, the idol sacrifices twinned with sexual immorality. Now, the two almost always go together in the Bible and in life. When we turn to other gods, sexual immorality follows. And it works both ways. Uh, sometimes it's the idolatry that leads to the immorality. We see it throughout the Old Testament. There's a god called Baal. In fact, it's Baal that uh, Jezebel tried to get the Israelites to worship. And Baal was a fertility god. And one of the ways you worshipped him was being very free with your body. As you were sort of sexually active, or so Baal would be, and he'd bless your crops. Adultery and sexual morality going together. And again, it's not that different in Thyatira from what we know of some of the kind of worship services. Bizarre as it may seem to us, promiscuity was part of the worship. And again, it's not that different from today, is it? Idolatry leading to sexual morality. 
Uh, so often when you see Christians compromise in their sexual life, it is because they've already switched Jesus off the, the, the top shelf, as it were. Or at least put something else alongside him, begun to compromise so that something is at least as important, if not more important, than Christ. Now, my kids have been learning about Henry VIII recently and his endless wives. I think in many ways he's a good example of it. Henry VIII, remember the story, children? Henry VIII marries and doesn't get a son. He really wants a son more than anything. Henry has the desire for a son. And so he finds a way of getting rid of a wife and bringing in Anne Boleyn. Out goes Catherine of Aragon for no good biblical reason. And in comes Anne Boleyn. It doesn't seem to be just pure lust. It's, he's got a desire, an idol that says, I must maintain my succession. I must have a son. The idolatry, the strong desire to be a king with a son leads to sexual immorality for Anne Boleyn, it seems. Again, it's not so much that she's sort of full of love with Henry or just head over heels, struck by his beauty, but power whether her or her family. If I can marry the king, then we've got power. So the idol of power leads her to sexual morality. On and on it goes. We live in a culture, as we've constantly said, that it says, me first. Follow your heart. That's a religion today, isn't it? Throw off anything that enshackles you. Be yourself. Free yourself and express yourself. That is the religion of the UK at the moment. And therefore, if you feel a desire, you should follow it. Idolatry and sexual morality almost always go together. Sometimes the idolatry leads to the sexual morality. Sometimes it's the sexual morality that leads to the idolatry. You see it working the other way as well. Uh, in the Bible, God gave marriage and sex as a picture, as a way of preaching to us, as it were, of the great delight that Christ takes in his people. And we read that marriage, male and female, is a picture of Christ and the church. And so marriage teaches us the exclusivity of that love. Christ and his people bound together. That the passion of that love, the intensity of that love. And therefore, when we ruin the picture of marriage and sexual union, when we become a guy with lots of girls or a girl with lots of guys, it becomes much easier to have lots of gods. This whole picture of marriage and sex was, was woven into creation to teach us, if you like, one guy, one God, one girl, one God. And so as soon as we start spreading ourselves around, then the preaching of that sign is weakened. And we're far less likely to give ourselves exclusively to Christ. And Jezebel said, that's all fine. That's all fine. Keep worshipping Jesus. Keep calling yourself a Christian. But you're totally okay to have other gods alongside him. And it doesn't matter what you do with your body, ultimately. Now, at this point, it was, it was very tempting. You, you might have seen it. Was very, um, that t- today is, is the big pride celebration uh, in Leeds. And initially, when I, when I was thinking about this, I've sort of, you know, written a bit of stuff about the pride marches that are about to go on in town and the, the numbers and the sponsorship from the city council and Sainsbury's, all that sort of stuff. And actually, I think that would have been a massive mistake because that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He is not looking out at the world and saying, look at them, aren't they a mess? He's looking at the church and saying, why are you behaving like that? Why are you tolerating those who say that kind of behavior is okay? And this kind of thing does go on in the church. We do tolerate what Jesus won't. There are... Again, there are churches this morning 
within you know, yards of here, frankly, that are celebrating the Pride March and are heading down there afterwards to join in. And these are professing Christians. And with our own fellowship, it is so easy to become those who, because we don't want to be extreme, or because we, we really get driven by our desires, just start to compromise. I don't want to be one of the fundamentalists. I don't want to be an extremist. I don't want to be a fanatic. And so we turn the temperature down and down and down until really Jesus is just one amongst a number of influences in my life. We tolerate what Jesus won't tolerate. And what do we do with that? Well, we need to become less tolerant. It sounds such a bizarre thing to say, isn't it? Now, again, it doesn't mean ranting and raving at people. It doesn't mean becoming harsh. We're going to think about this when we look at Jesus' response. It's not about being judgmental. But it does mean, as a, as a congregation, we're a young church. We're not even five years old yet. It does mean that we do need to be careful about what is taught and tolerated to be taught. When we interviewed Nick uh, to be associate minister, we didn't ask him, but perhaps we should have asked him, are you sure you're intolerant enough to be an elder in the church? Okay, it might be that one day one of you needs to phone up Presbytery, the, the, the body of elders in the denomination we're part of, that, that we're accountable to, and say, look, I'm really sorry, but Jonty is just too tolerant. You've got to do something about him. We mustn't tolerate what Jesus won't. And do you see what that leads to? It leads to, secondly, that Jesus judges when we won't. It's verses 22 and 23. Jesus judges when we won't. Verse 22, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I'll throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I'll strike her children dead. They're pretty striking words to hear from Jesus, aren't they? Jesus who is gentle and lowly. Jesus who, when the woman caught in adultery was brought to him, said to the men trying to stone her, let him who's without sin cast the first stone. Jesus who welcomed the tax collectors, the prostitutes, who forgave the thief on the cross as he was being crucified next to him. Here is Jesus, full of mercy, saying... I will strike her children dead unless she repents. The children, I think, are her followers rather than literal children. We don't really know anything about who particularly this Jezebel was, and therefore we don't know anything particularly about who her followers were. There's a possibility she's the pastor's wife. Uh, So in verse 20, when we're told that you tolerate that woman, it's it's literally your woman, Jezebel. And the word for woman and wife in the New Testament are the same. It's just not a different word. So it may be the wife of the messenger to the church. If These letters are all written to the angels or to the messengers of the church. And it might be that that messenger is, is, is the pastor, as it were. But we can't be sure. What we can be sure of is that Jesus promises he will come and judge when the church won't. Again, how literal language is, it's, it's hard to know. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed. It seems that he's picking up the imagery of sexual morality and saying, look, I will turn the, the, the bed of kind of pleasure and immorality into a bed of pain. Certainly it's true, and we see elsewhere in the New Testament, that Jesus is willing to come in judgment before the final judgment, as it were. I think of the letter of the Corinthians, where, where because of the way the church are treating one another, because of their attitude towards the Lord's Supper to, to communion, this meal we're going to share, 
Jesus has come in judgment and said, actually, some of you were ill because of these attitudes, and some of you have even died because of what you're doing to one another. Jesus is not obliged to reserve all judgment until that final day when he comes again. He disciplines those he loves, and he has every right to judge those outside his kingdom whenever he chooses. And so in some way he promises that he will come and shut down Jezebel's project and shut down Jezebel herself. Verse 23 could be confusing, couldn't it? All the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give to each of you according to your works. I don't think Jesus is saying there, now look, you're saved if you're good and don't commit sexual morality and you're lost if you do. He's not undermining the gospel. We know the gospel preached all the way through the Bible. It is one of grace, mercy and forgiveness that we're saved by putting our faith in Jesus, not by our own works. Rather here, I think what Jesus is saying is, I will divide, I will separate between those who go Jezebel's way, commit themselves to idolatry and immorality, and those who hold fast to me and the gospel. Those who turn and repent, come to me for forgiveness and blessing, well, you will be blessed, as we'll see in a moment. But those who maintain their walk in Jezebel's ways will come under judgment. Uh, That's why this whole issue of immorality and idolatry is not a secondary issue. I think that's something that's got a bit of traction recently. Sometimes you hear people people say things like, well, the gospel is about Jesus living, dying, rising again, about forgiveness and mercy. And that is a primary issue. After all, that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, isn't it? I pass on to you things of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. He doesn't talk there about sex or sexuality or marriage or all the kind of things that we, we get head up about. And so therefore that they're secondary issues that we can just agree to disagree on. Now, the gospel, as I heard one church minister say this week, the gospel is not be sexually pure. And his conclusion was, therefore God doesn't mind or care about your sex life. Well that's kind of true, isn't it? The gospel isn't be sexually pure. And certainly it's not the gospel to say that we need to turn, or rather that sexual morality needs to be abandoned. That in itself is not the gospel. The gospel is about Christ crucified. But it is necessary to know what you need to turn from in order to believe the gospel. So it's a bit of a false sort of dichotomy, a bit of a false choice to say, because something isn't the gospel, it's therefore totally secondary, and we don't need to worry about it. Children, imagine you're on a lifeboat. And someone runs, sorry, you're on a boat, you're a big ship. Someone runs in and says, the ship's sinking. It's on fire, it's going to go down. But there's a lifeboat just through that door that will take you to safety. What's the good news? Well, the good news is there's a lifeboat just through the door that will take you safely home to shore. Is it good news, and gospel just means good news, is it good news that the ship's on fire and sinking? Well, no, that's not good news. But you do need to believe the ship's on fire and sinking, in order that you'll then go and get in the lifeboat. Okay, the fire isn't technically the good news. But you'll never get into believing the good news unless you understand the bad news first. Sex 
sexual immorality and idolatry do lead to judgment at Jesus' hands. He stands introducing himself in this letter, verse 18, as the one who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. Each letter, as we've seen, introduces Jesus, or introduces, Jesus introduces himself in each letter in a different way. To those who are being killed for their faith, he introduces himself as the one who has conquered death. But here, to those in the church who are rebelling against him, he introduces himself as mighty and strong, burnished bronze, burningly pure, who can see exactly into uh, what everyone is up to, into every heart and mind. There is no escaping him, no hiding. He will judge if we won't. The obvious application, therefore, is that we do need to. Again, we need to cut out any kind of teaching that leads us away from Christ and the gospel and the pattern of life uh, that he teaches. Uh, Back in the days when the uh, the Reformation really kicked in, that that great rediscovery of the gospel and the the freedom and the grace of God at, uh, at Calvary, uh, all sorts of new churches started popping up. Until that, that point, at least in, in much of Europe, every church would have been a Roman Catholic church or become a Roman Catholic church. And suddenly there's congregations popping up everywhere. And they suddenly have to start thinking, well, what, what makes a church? If two of you go for coffee and you're both Christians and you read the Bible, is that church? If someone just decides to sort of announce they're holding a service on Sunday, is, is that a church? What makes a church? And by reflecting on the New Testament, a sort of consensus came together, really. That you, that you need to kind of three things to, to make a church distinct from just a, a gathering of Christians who are encouraging one another or evangelizing together or whatever it might be. You need the, the right preaching of the word of God, the gospel. Okay, the gospel ultimately creates the church. So no gospel, no word of God, it's not a real church. Uh, you need the, the administration of what are sometimes called the sacraments or the ordinances, basically baptism and the Lord's Supper, these two signs that Jesus gave to the church, one of entry, baptism, and one of continuing with him, the Lord's Supper. But there's a third thing that they decided was necessary, and that is the administration of church discipline. In other words, the willingness to say, when needs be, what you are doing is wrong to someone, be they a minister or congregation member, and also the willingness to to bring sanctions, punishments if needs be, even to send someone out of the church and say, no, you are no longer part of this church. In other words, the willingness to be intolerant of some things. If we're not willing to do that, then the church is ruined, undermined. I just remember Neville Chamberlain, just before World War, War II, got, got off the plane and he stands there with a piece of paper in his hand and says, I have peace for our time. And he's holding a piece of paper signed by him and Hitler saying that Czechoslovakia will never be invaded. We're, we're all fine. Now, the piece of paper was great. The problem was one of the signatures had no intention of honouring it. As a church, we're part of a denomination that has, a, I think, a good doctrinal basis, a thing called the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it's good and it's healthy. But it's no use me standing at the front waving our doctrine, doctrinal statement around or pointing to the website and saying, look, look how sound this doctrine is. If, if people start teaching other things, we just sort of let it go. That's why you as a congregation need to hold me and the other elders to account That's the point, as I've said, of the presbytery to hold all the ministers and elders of the denomination to account. It is not just about a piece of paper to wave around, but the willingness to expel Jezebel 
Expel Jonty, if needs be. And why? Again, this could, it could sound, in many ways it is, a very heavy letter. It's the longest of the letters, uh, the seven letters in Revelation. And it's the one most full of the kind of most graphic images of judgment. It is a heavy tone in many ways. But ultimately, finally, as we wrap up, uh, why is this all the case? When we tolerate what Jesus won't, when Jesus judges, when we won't, uh, why is this? It is because Jesus longs to bless his people. Jesus longs to bless his people. So verse 25 to the end. Sorry, verse 24 to the end. These letters, even full of threats of coming and causing people to die, these are from the Jesus who bled and died for his people, who longs to save and forgive any who come to him, who won't turn away anyone, who repents and puts their trust in him. And so you see, woven through the letters, three strands of grace, three cords of grace, if you like, golden threads, that remind us that there is always grace. The verse is there in verse 24. Jesus says, look, to those of you who who haven't turned to Jezebel's ways, I won't lay on you any other burden. Just hold fast what you have until I come. Just hold on. I'm not giving you a list of rules to, to get you to heaven. Hold fast to what I've given you. In other words, the gospel. Now coming to us wrapped in the scriptures. Hold on to that. That's all I'm asking. Secondly, there's an invitation to repent. Three times in the passage, Jesus invites the, uh, the church to repent. Even Jezebel has had this opportunity to repent. There is always grace. Repent, repent, repent. To repent is to turn back to Jesus. It's not to clean yourself up first, to sort yourself out, then come to Jesus and say, look, I'm tidy now. I've got no more problems, no more sin. If you wait until you've got rid of all your sin, you'll never go to him because you're always going to have sin. Rather, to repent is to, is to turn to Jesus and say, look, you are right. This is wrong. This idolatry, this compromise, this half-heartedness, this sexual morality. It is wrong. I see that. Forgive me and change me. And Jesus will always welcome you when you do that. He will never turn you away. Don't wait until you've cleaned yourself up. Uh, yes, he is the one with feet of burnished bronze. The one who, in the letter of Pergamum, said, I, I come to you as the one with a sword coming out of my mouth. But he's also the lamb who was slain. The one who will welcome you. Nothing you've done is too bad for Christ to forgive. You cannot have gone too far. You cannot have done anything too serious. Turn to him. Maybe today that is you. You need to turn back and be embraced by his mercy again. Forgiveness for the sin and change, transformation from the patterns of disobedience. And then finally, there is the promises in verse 26 and 27. To the one who conquers, I will give authority over the nations. Verse 26 and 27 are a reference back to Psalm 2. We don't have time to turn to it now. It seems strange. I don't think he's saying, hey, if you, if you hold fast, I'll let you bash up loads of people. Uh, rather, you will join me in my rule. You will join me when we conquer over sin, death, the devil and the world, all those like Jezebel who stand against me. You will join me in that perfect rule when I return. And I'll give you, verse 28, the morning star. What is that, children? What, you know, do you want to be given a star? The morning star? Is he going to give you a giant burning ball of gas? Well, no. Come with me right to the end of the Bible, the very last page of the Bible. Revelation 22. 
and verse 16. It's page 1042. Revelation 22 and verse 16. Revelation twenty two sixteen. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things of the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus will give you himself, he is promising. Hold fast in the gospel. And although the world's pressure might feel like it's going to overwhelm you, although the pressure to, to compromise, to not be too radical, to be a little bit English will feel so great at times. Jesus says, no, hold fast, wholeheartedly to me, and I will give you myself. Jesus invites you to repent and turn to him. He's not asking you, children, to give up chocolate for cabbages. He's not asking you to give up something fantastic for something rubbish. He's offering you the best thing he could give you, himself, to know him fully and finally, when he returns and we join him in the new heavens and new earth, will be immeasurably more joyful, pleasurable, satisfying than we can begin to imagine now. By now we live by faith, not by sight. We doubt, we tremble, we worry. Then all that will be wiped away. And he's offering you eternal joy by giving you himself the greatest gift he could possibly give. So hold fast. Don't compromise. Don't tolerate Flee the immorality and embrace Christ who will embrace you with a joy you can't imagine. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we're much quicker to see the, the sins, the, the problems in others than we are in ourselves. And uh, we pray that today you would shine the light of your spirit into our hearts to show us uh, the, the places where we're in danger of compromising. Uh, where we're willing to just make peace with the world. Uh, we pray that you would give us a heart of repentance, uh, a willingness not to tolerate in our own lives or in our church fellowship anything that leads us away uh, from the love, the grace, the joy of Christ and his gospel. Watch over us, we pray. Unless you watch over the house, that then we watch in vain. And so bless and keep us and build your church, we pray. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.